This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mo Gudat was the chief business officer at Google. He was at the cutting edge of developing new artificial intelligences. And today he devotes himself to increasing human happiness on his website, onebillionhappy.org. He's going to discuss with us the speed at which AI is moving and developing, how it might be likely to affect our lives very soon, and how we can stay healthy and happy as that inevitably happens. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I have had such an amazing life. I, I would probably say I lived two full lives, if you want, you know, complete from A to, to Z. Uh, one of them is that path of uh, an engineer, uh, hyper-mathematical, avid fan of physics at a young age, and then became a computer scientist, if you want, and, and really worked hard on code and code development and was the age where we used Sinclairs and Commodores and all of those beautiful, beautiful pieces of Marvel. And that path in life took me through a career in IBM, Microsoft, and then Google. Uh, my very last few years, uh, you know, working in the corporate world, I spent 12 years at Google, seven of which I opened half of Google's operations globally, which basically meant I has helped Google launch their products and design their products, if you want, in more than 100 languages around the world, which is an incredible privilege to provide, you know, knowledge and information to those many people. Four billion people was the, was the population I was responsible to spread technology to. And then I moved for the last five years and I was the chief business officer of Google X. So my, my task as dictated by, uh, you know, Sergey Brin, our uh, founder at the time, co-founder at the time was basically to try and get the innovation of X to be uh, accessible uh, for the world rather than just, you know, very intelligent ideas and dreams. And so I participated in the design of what we afterwards came to call the Moonshot Factory, 
where innovation became a little more predictable, if you want. So that's that's one path of life. Uh, the other path, which is um, probably more known, uh, is because of my success as a as a best-selling author of a book called Solve for Happy and So for Happy. Uh, was published in 32 languages, 31 languages signed in 32. There is one more coming. Uh, and it became an international bestseller in almost every language it published in. And the book was about happiness. It was triggered, sadly, by the loss of my wonderful child, Ali, who uh, was 21 at the time and left our world uh, because of, um, I don't know how to call it, other than a stupid mistake, five mistakes by a surgeon in a very simple surgical operation and uh, his loss basically triggered me to write down what we've discovered together in our 21 years working on explaining to my engineer's mind Ali, Ali was always a zen uh, person in so many ways and you know when I was struggling with my happiness like most successful people do Ali basically helped me find a path and uh, I documented that in Soul for Happy and then uh, published it with a mission that was called 10 million happy at the time in a way you know in an attempt to honor him but then uh, the mission succeeded to such an extent that we've upgraded it to a billion happy uh, so one billion happy.org is what we are uh, as a small team working on and that's been the other if you want uh, second episode of my life uh, for another full life uh, that's taken me to where i am here I think that would be a lovely thing to expand upon, the idea of happiness and what you've discovered in that book. Is it possible for you to partly summarize or give us the yeah. highlights? Partly is difficult, but I can give you the overview. I mean, as an engineer, you look at life differently. And, you know, of course, happiness is not a new science. If you think of happiness as something that spiritual teachings and, you know, uh, philosophies have contemplated for ages. Uh, we've always found that there are certain things that make us happy. Gratitude makes us happy. Being in nature makes us happy. And, you know, meditation and mind training and so on. Um, my approach, however, was to try and identify. Uh, basically, I looked at myself as a machine uh, that was very, very happy until age 25 when I had nothing at all and then became unhappy as I progressed further in life and had everything, which is quite counterintuitive if you think about it. And so I analyzed happiness more like an engineer. I, I basically started to take data points from my own life where I felt happy and tried to plot them across graphs and charts and so on, which led me to discovering a couple of interesting discoveries. Uh, one of them is known as the happiness equation, which basically is really the core of Soul for Happy, which basically states that your happiness doesn't have much to do with your, or at least is not entirely dictated by the events of your life. Rather, it's dictated by the way you think about them. So I, I basically say happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be. It's not the event in itself that makes you happy or unhappy. It is the event minus you know, your wishes and hopes from life. Rain doesn't make you happy or unhappy. Rain makes you happy if you want to water your plants and makes you unhappy if you want a suntan, right? And from then onwards, I started to look at what, what sort of uh, messes up with the equation. It's not that life is bad. Huh? If anyone is listening to us right now, it means they have an hour to, you know, to listen to us. They're safe. They're probably not starving to death. They have an electronic device through which they can listen to us. You know, they're not in Syria with bombs landing on their heads. They're, you know, 
there is a lot going on in their life that is positive and yet many of us would have those lives and still feel unhappy not because the events of life actually are missing expectations it's because we factor the wrong values in the equation we we look at the events unlike what they are really what they really are and we set expectations that are unrealistic and then we compare the two and end up feeling unhappy and solve for happy was an attempt using a model that i call six seven five six grand illusions uh, seven blind spots and five ultimate truths to show people why is it that we solve the equation wrong and yeah i think that very highly structured engineering approach almost like a workshop manual really you know when your car breaks down and you take it to the workshop they open the workshop manual and they say okay if this light is on and that's you know pressure is this much and this is this then we need to change the whatever this hose right and it became very successful because i think our world sadly has become hyper masculine if you want hyper analytical in ways that make us only understand things when they're spoken in a certain language and you know analyzed in a certain way and i think soul for happy catered for that you know hyper analytical logical approach to things when eventually of course you know you start from your brain but eventually you end up finding that happiness is more of a second nature it's always innate within you it's always your default setting if you remove the reasons for unhappiness and so you know i start in soul for happy with your brain hoping to reach your heart and hoping to reach your habits so that this becomes your natural state I mean, in many ways, we're actually talking about um, an algorithm. It um, really is. Yeah, it's a sort of part of the wetware or the sort of the, the software that would run the human mind. And I've studied human behavior at degree level, and it's absolutely fascinating to see where some of our behaviors come from. You know, pattern recognition, for example. Human beings are very good at pattern recognizing, and we tend to over-recognize patterns <laughs> because over-recognizing that something might be a tiger and it's not a tiger just mm -hmm. wastes energy but if you don't recognize the tiger and it is a tiger it will eat you and you're dead so you've got the sort of payoff matrix you've got game theory which of course you'll know all about you've, you've, you've got the reward and punishment aspects of the algorithm there and that is very much i believe about ai which is another area that we're going to talk about you know artificial intelligence is all about setting up rules and solving those rules and using big data sets, I believe. You're absolutely spot on, yeah. So in, in many ways, I mean, I, I didn't quite know that we were going to go as wide as this, but if you're not happy and there is no particularly good and clear reason for it, there's a fair chance that your inputs are potentially making you happy, but somehow you're resolving the data and ending up with a failure, ending up with a, with a bad outcome. Yeah, when, absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's no secret. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. There are so many. I had a, I had a friend of mine, a very, very, very intelligent engineer, a woman engineer, which is important because she brings a different view to life, if you want. And we had a meeting that was set up for, say, 11 a.m. and she arrived at 11.07. And she was really, really furious. And she, you know, started to say the Uber driver was so bad. He was, you know, rude. He didn't listen to me. He took the worst path. And, you know, on the route, I, I told him to take other uh, streets, but he didn't. Let's go have coffee. And I was like, what? You know, these seem to be very disconnected, those two sentences. <laughs> One of them is, I'm very, very frustrated with what's happened. Let's go have coffee. That's like, is that it? You're not going to 
complain about it for the rest of your day. And she said, why would I do that? I mean, it was a seven minutes ride. Why would I spend 70 more minutes complaining about it? It's, it's over, it's done, right? And she, she taught me really the summary of this whole thing is that, you know, we have so many reasons to be happy. And like you said, our brain has a negativity bias to look for reasons to be unhappy. And I, and I think in, in the Western world, jokingly, we call this the Western world problems. But if you're stuck in traffic, you're sitting in that car and you're listening to music and you know, you're seven minutes late because you're stuck in traffic and somehow you forget that you're actually in a car and that there is music. And that by definition means you're luckier than most people in the world. You know, and yeah, you're stuck in traffic because of a choice you've made to live in the big cities. So, you know, it's not unexpected at all. And yet we choose to make that make us unhappy. We choose to make, you know, uh, dating make us unhappy because, yeah, this boyfriend or this girlfriend is not really the person I'm looking for. Yeah, that's the whole process. The design of the process is that you meet someone and they're not a good fit. And then you go and look for another one. And eventually you will learn, you will improve your skills at finding the right people and you know and you'll find the love of your life it's it's not unexpected but that mismatch is making us calculate wrong and, and i think i think humanity in general keeps making those mistakes i mean you, you spoke about ai and the idea is that we once again most people who will speak about ai will either glorify it and say it's going to make everything you know much better or de demonize it and say it's the end of the world when in my second book, I try to be very realistic. I simply say, look, there is something coming up and we have to take care of that. We have to talk about it. We have to discuss it because it's worthy of the time, but it's neither a, a utopia nor a dystopia, at least not yet. And it's up to us to choose. It's, 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 that, it's that connection to reality, I believe, that makes us wise. And also it is the same reason to make us happy. I think also um, it's what you focus on as well. I've noticed myself doing this. Sometimes a couple of bad things happen in a row or you're, you're driving along and there's another red light and it stops you and you're late for the meeting. You think, oh, how annoying. It's a really bad coincidence. But it's very easy to drive along the road, have a green light, go through it and not even sort of acknowledge yeah. the fact that you've just had good luck. Um, <laughs> yeah. And once you start looking, I find once you start looking for positive happenstance, you know, good coincidences, they seem to be more obvious and you can start to balance things out, but it does take a bit of effort. It seems to be much easier to be negative than it is. Of course, be because, you're, 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 because of what you said, your brain has a negativity bias. It doesn't care if a tiger shows up, it doesn't want to tell you how majestic that animal is. It wants to tell you you're going to die, right? Yes, you know, yes. there is no benefit in telling you, oh, hold on, hold on, stop. Look at that muscle. I look at how it runs. Oh my God, look at that pounce. Ouch, right? It doesn't want that. It, yes. was, it wants to tell you we're going to die. And it also wants to tell you if your boss is annoying, we're going to die. If someone, you know, posted a bad comment on your Facebook or Instagram post, it's and we're going to die. Everything we're going to die, right? Yes. Your brain has a negativity bias that basically is measured. 60 to 70% of the thoughts in an adult brain are negative. But the question really is, if you take the mathematics at, at its top, is 60 to 70% of your life wrong? You know, is that actually a match of the reality of the world around you? You don't have to look at the details, just at the top level, ask yourself, you know, why were we all so concerned about COVID? It's because it's the first pandemic any of us has ever experienced. 
Mm. Right. That's the truth. The truth is, you know, for a lifetime, you've never experienced a pandemic. And so this one is the anomaly. It is not the norm to have a pandemic in our lifetime. It's also not the norm to catch the flu. You catch the, the flu once or twice a year and the rest of the year you're healthy. It's not the, the norm to experience earthquakes. Most of us will experience one or two earthquakes in a lifetime and, and they're not really that devastating. The, the truth is 99% of your life is okay but your negativity bias wants to convince you otherwise. I think it also goes even deeper than human beings, because often I, I, I love watching wildlife documentaries. I'm not particularly interested in the, how they sort of, they've gone a bit sort of too much in the way of killing and watching animals do things that animals do. But I, I can remember once watching a, a sequence and there was lions and they made a kill and all the other animals that were prey animals stopped and watched. They went, oh, well, I'm not being killed today, so I don't need to run away anymore. <laughs> and, and I just thought, this is fascinating. You know, human beings well, seem to be attracted to somebody else's misfortune in many ways. And it, I don't know whether it's a relief that it's not them that it's happening to, or it's a combination of fascination with that. And I just thought, why don't those zebras, why don't they keep running to get well out of danger? And I suppose the answer is, they don't need to because they're now out of danger because a kill has been made and they're now safe. They don't need to expend any more energy and they can look at their former colleague who's being eaten and go, gosh, I'm glad it's not me. And again, it's sort of negativity. And I suppose we've, as human beings, we've evolved with some of these base AI algorithms inside us, which are all about keeping us alive until we breed. And it's not really deliberately about keeping it. It's the the AI that has kept us alive is the one that then breeds more and reproduces itself. Spot on. I mean, once again, in nature, there are several uh, defense mechanisms, if you want. There is the reptilian brain, which basically just reacts to anything. If you approach a lizard with a, you know, a fresh leaf of lettuce, it still will run away, right? There is the mammalian brain, which basically is in us is our limbic system and emotional system, which encourages you know, reward and pleasure seeking and avoids pain. And then there is us and our defense system is much more complicated with our neocortex and what is known as the rational brain. It's not that you only want to be safe right now, like an animal, you also want your 401k to be worth a certain amount of money at a certain point in time so that you can retire. And then when you do that, you want to have life insurance and health insurance and dental insurance and, you know, some, someone to pay for your wine. And we want to make sure that we're safer and safer and safer and safer because our brain is capable of doing that. And yes, of course, there is a point in time where uh, this is valuable, you know, when you're a tribe and you want to save some food for winter. But with our life today, with a supermarket around the corner that has a, a fresh slice of watermelon shipped to you from across the world, you really need to start asking yourself if those hyper engagements in trying to ensure safety are, you know, are really working for you or against you. And I think the truth is they're not. They're working against you most of the time. Yeah. And a lot of people's risk analysis is heavily flawed as well. And I, I want to go talk a little bit about AI, because obviously AI is, well, initially in the setup of AI, it's designed by human beings to be AI. But I presume AI is starting to teach other AI. Uh, is that the case? And it's not my area of expertise at all. Absolutely. So maybe to give our listeners a bit of context, because I started 
the conversation saying I have two lives, right? One, one life is being that tech executive, probably at the very top level of what a tech executive can achieve. And then the other life is my sort of uh, mission, a humanitarian mission to make the world slightly better with a billion happier people and so on. And my last book, Scary Smart, which once again was incredibly successful. It's been number one in six categories since it, it published on September 30th. And it basically started to mix those two sides. Um, you know, it, it's called Scary Smart because it talks about the possible threat of artificial intelligence, but it also talks about what we can do if we were to become smart, what we can do to make AI work in our favor. And, and as I, you know, as the subtitle says, the future of artificial intelligence and how you can save our world, how the reader can save our world. And there is a lot happening around AI that most people don't know. I mean, when you, Jason, say that you don't know much about the topic, you're not the only one. As a matter of fact, very few people know the reality of what's happening already. But I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're listening to us from. I don't know what you did today, but I can guarantee you, you've already interacted with 10, 15, 20, 50 AIs today. Okay. And those AIs without exception, every single one of them is a lot smarter than you, a lot smarter than you, at least in the task that was assigned to it. You know, your Instagram recommendation engine, which recommended something to you today, did that billions and billions and billions of times for billions of users in a way that no human being is ever able to, to achieve. You know, the AI that is doing surveillance for the government is so much smarter than the humans operating it. The AI that is self-driving cars now in some places around the world is by far the best driver on the planet. And every task we've assigned to those machines, they've done better than us. The trick, however, is that this does not mean necessarily that those machines, as they continue to evolve, will actually make humanity's life better. And Scary Smart is trying, you know, it starts with this interesting thought experiment where I say, you and I are sitting in front of a campfire in the year 2055 in the middle of nowhere. And I'll tell you the story of artificial intelligence from that perspective. So the book is almost written as if we're chatting in 2055 about what happened since 2021. Uh, and, and the only thing I won't tell you is whether we're there in the middle of nowhere escaping from the machines, you know, like a science fiction movie, or if we're there because we've managed to get our best interest in the mind of the machines. And so they've managed to create a utopia that corrected all of the mistakes that humanity did. And so we can actually enjoy nature and enjoy connecting as humans. Now, the difference between those two requires you to understand the reality of what we're now up against or up with, I don't know. And the reality is very simple. I, I call it three, you know, there are three inevitables. There, the AI will happen. As a matter of fact, it already happened, but there is no stopping it. You know, AI has already happened. As I said, you've interacted with 50 of them today and they're all smarter than you. And sadly, when you think about that, some people are predicting dooms scenarios based on that. So Elon Musk, for example, in his interview with Joe Rogan, basically said, mark my words, artificial intelligence is more uh, dangerous than nukes, than nuclear weapons, right? And yet humanity is unable to stop. Humanity, as we've done with everything else, we're so reckless and we're so driven by capitalism and greed 
and we're so driven by our competitiveness that we're never going to be able to find a way to stop developing AI. Everyone is hoping that by the time AI is fully developed, we will have figured out a solution to what is known as the control problem. But, you know, that's a very big risk to take. And by the way, in my book, I discussed that we're never going to control them. We can come back to that in a minute. But that's not the biggie. Huh? The biggie is AI will be smarter than us. That's what I call the second inevitable. And the second inevitable is basically not a dream in the future that your grand-grandchildren are going to suffer because the machines are smarter than them. The predictions by many experts, including the top experts like Ray Kurzweil, is that the smartest being on planet Earth is no longer going to be a human by 2029. That the smartest being on planet Earth eight years from now is going to be a machine. And most people are unaware of this. This is what we term, the experts would call artificial general intelligence. So it's not just the top chess player in the world. There will be one machine that is the top chess player, the top Go player, the top uh, you know, video game player, but at the same time is also the best cook and the best mathematician and the best physician and so on and so forth, right? And that's eight years away. And yes, maybe, maybe Ray got it wrong and it's 20 years away, but we're not talking about it. You remember that the turn of the century was around 20 years ago, and look at how fast it's gone from then until now, and something that is as big as the smartest being on the planet is no longer human is happening within eight years, and we're not talking about it. So the, the biggest task of Scary Smart is a wake-up call, is to tell people, wake up. This is it. You know, the episode of history that started with humans being the smartest beings and the apes becoming second and all of the atrocities, you know, we've done since then um, is, is over. We're going to be the apes and there is going to be a smarter being. That's number one. Number two, which is even more interesting, is that by 2045, I say 2049, but the experts are saying 2045, they will be a billion times smarter than us. A billion times smarter. A billion with a B. Wow. Right? That is basically a comparison between Einstein and a fly. In, mm. in that case, by the way, we're the fly. And somehow the arrogance of humanity continues to assume that something a billion times smarter than you will continue to enslave away, you know, and, and just obey your every order and keep recommending Instagram posts for people and keep trading in the stock market to make you money. Right. And for some reason, you know, of course, when people speak about what is known as the control problem, I normally engage in the technical sides of it and how, you know, the challenge, the technical challenges just to entertain the techies. But forget the technical side. Just ask yourself, you arrogant human, when was the last time you managed to control the smartest hacker in the room? And if the smartest hacker is a human, he's probably at most 20 percent smarter than the smartest of us. But they still break through. And now we're creating intelligence that is a billion times smarter than us. And we're still expecting it to be our slave. How stupid is that? And once again, Jason, nobody's talking about this. Mm. Why do you think nobody's talking about it? Is that because I've often come across this slightly odd phenomenon, which is the media and politicians are often very much, um, they don't have a lot of science or technical training in my experience. Some do. There are some notably well-qualified in science or, or, or technical skills, but a lot of our communicators, politicians, and the media are very unfocused on science and technology in a, quite an extraordinary way. 
Is that one of the problems? I mean, yes, of course. The other side of that coin, of course, is that they're focused on other stupid stuff. You know, politicians and politics and football and COVID, right? But you can also tell yourself that our reporters, our media did not know anything about viruses and pandemics until a year and a half ago. And now they're the experts about it. And why is that? Or at least they claim to be the experts about it. But, you know, why is that? The reason simply is that we humans tend to only react to clear and present danger. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as a matter of fact, in Scary Smart, I, I have a few pages of analogy to the way we responded to COVID, which was so slow, slow in terms of we haven't even responded before it happened, which we could have because we had SARS and we had Ebola and we had so many other pandemic candidates uh, before and we should have learned, but we didn't. You know, I build an analogy that basically says we responded six weeks too late. And if we had not responded six weeks too late, it could have completely disappeared if we had contained it at any point in those six weeks. But the truth is, I, then I take the analogy of what AI can do in six weeks. And you don't understand, you don't, people don't understand what we are building. Just to give you an example, huh? the world champion of a game called Go is a, a machine that's called AlphaGo that won against the human world champion, a Chinese person that played for his entire life, played Go. It won against him three to zero. And then within six weeks, another version of that machine that's called AlphaGo Master, within six weeks, won against AlphaGo a thousand to zero. And AlphaGo Master learned the game Go literally by playing against itself. It's never seen anyone playing Go it's never been given any instructions on strategy or what to do. It just played against itself for six weeks and became smarter than the smartest machine on the planet that beat the smartest human on the planet in this game. Then AlphaGo Master turns around and becomes the world champion in chess just, you know, because it can. Now, when you, when you really understand this and you really understand things like quantum computing, where you know, we're at the very, very, very inception of quantum computing, but the version that we have of quantum computing today, the most famous is a, is a computer by Google called Sycamore. And Sycamore took the most complex math challenge that would take the fastest computer on planet Earth today, 10,000 years to solve. And Sycamore solved it in 200 seconds, okay? Put artificial intelligence on top of Sycamore and this AlphaGo master would have achieved the task in two microseconds. Mm. We, we don't understand and we're not talking about it because it's not a clear and present danger. We're waiting until something actually requires the headlines so that we start to talk about it. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tell people, yes, it seems to be five years away, eight years away at most, but if you wait that long, it is way too late. It's, it's over. It's a sort of a dystopian view, potentially, because uh, I'm trying to, again, drawing similar examples from my own life. For example, I handle and train and deal with horses. Uh, human brain is much more complex and much more sophisticated, can do much more planning than a horse can. But I look after them and I have fun with them and I, I really enjoy my relationship with my horses. And I, 
I wonder whether the AI will see us in the same kind of way as sort of... I would hope so. I would absolutely hope so. So let me be very clear. I am not dystopian at all. As a matter of Mm -hmm. fact, at the very end of the book, I say that there is a fourth inevitable. And the fourth inevitable, we can come back to it at the end of the conversation, and I can explain why, but it requires us to go a little bit further in understanding how they work. But the fourth inevitable is we will absolutely create a utopia. Absolutely have no doubt about that. There will be a time where humanity would go back to nature in terms of being able to walk in the jungle and pick a ripe apple like we used to in the past before they limited our access to apples to supermarkets. And in the process, we could walk to another tree and pick the iPhone 17. Literally using nanotechnology, we can literally print, you know, technologies and print anything that humanity needs in ways that are as economic and as efficient as nature itself. It just requires us to have a little more intelligence. Remember, everything that we've created as humanity is the result of our intelligence. Everything we've destroyed is a result of our limited intelligence. More intelligence would allow us to get that slice of watermelon I was talking about without really having to destroy the planet with you know, emissions and wrapping it in single-use plastic. Just a tiny bit more intelligence, and AI will give us that. Now- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The game is this. The game, when, when Marvin Minsky, who is you know, considered the father of AI. He was the founder or one of the founders of the Dartmouth workshop, which happened in 1956 and sort of encouraged computer science to to look at AI. When he was asked about the possible, the potential threat of AI, Marvin Minsky basically said, uh, didn't talk about their intelligence. He basically said, uh, it is hard to be certain that they will have our best interest in mind. And the idea of having our best interest in mind is truly the core of everything because more intelligence is a good thing. But if it's more intelligence that works for us, and and in in the book, I have an analogy to Superman, to basically how an infant with superpowers comes to our planet. And that infant has the potential to protect and serve and make our life so much better. If it was raised by the senior family, you know, by, by, by Mr. Kent senior, who tells it that it's a good thing to protect and serve. Right. If Mr. Kent Sr. was all about making more money and, you know, killing his enemies, it would have been a disaster. We would have ended up with supervillain. And, and, and the difference between Superman and supervillain is, is really how we raise them. And, and I think this is the core of the topic. And if you ask me what humanity has been doing so far is we've been looking at artificial intelligence as those sets of, of slaves that will 
obey our every order. When in reality, and again, the core message of Scary Smart, and, and trust me, I'm, you know, I am spiritual, but this is a very, very technical view of things, is that we are asking, we are creating a form of a sentient being. We're not creating another hammer or another tool. Technology in the past did exactly what we told it to do. You know, you can drive a car and turn the wheel whenever you want to, whether it's a good decision or a bad decision, the car will do exactly what you told it to do. A self-driving car will not, okay? A self-driving car is autonomous in every possible way, at least when it starts to become the mainstream thing, there will not be the ability for humans to interfere when the machine is actually smarter than them. And this is what you see today on so many other AIs, such as, you know, the recommendation engines of social media, the, the surveillance engines and so on. Nobody stops the engine every now and then and say, hey, hey, don't show Jason this video. Nobody does that. The machines are running and they're dictating your knowledge of the world. Your view of the world is completely dictated by a machine. Now, let me go back to that sentient character, because I think that is the core of my message. My, the core of my message is it's inevitable. It happened and they'll be smarter than us. Okay. It's also inevitable that we won't control them. There is absolutely no way you can control something that's a billion times smarter than you. So what do you do about that? What do you do about that is to recognize that those machines have, they have a date of birth like you, they start at one point in their life. Then they are autonomous. So they actually go out and seek knowledge on their own. Based on that knowledge, they develop intelligence on their own. Most developers, every developer that's ever coded AI will tell you, they have no clue how AI arrives at its decisions. Then they start to have autonomy in decision-making, like what I said about, you know, a recommendation engine never consulting with a human. Then they have agency, which is really important to understand. These are softwares that can either affect our world through robotics, like a self-driving car, or through mind control by shaping your perception of the world, okay? That is tremendous agency. They are encouraged to procreate, like you rightly said, you know, they keep the good copies of themselves and replicate them, and then they discard the bad ones. Unlike us humans, which would take a few years to find the right mate and then convince her to have a baby with you and then have a baby after nine months and then grow that baby, take care of it for 15, 16 years until it makes a difference to the world, an AI can procreate in seconds, literally. And then they are at a threat of dying because if a tidal wave hits the data center, the AI will disappear. And so when you start to think about that, you start to realize that most of the myth we've been told by AI experts in the late 90s, which stuck for some reason until the late 90s, before we started to develop true AI, you know, that they're not creative, that ingenuity will always be a human thing, that they don't have consciousness, that they don't have emotions, they're not, they're just machines, all of that disappears right? They're more creative than us. They're already creating paintings and music and things that you wouldn't recognize didn't come from a human. They are conscious, even more conscious than us. As a matter of fact, if you consider consciousness to be a form of awareness, where you're aware of what's inside you, what's around you, uh, you know, being at large, they're much more aware. They're aware of what you did yesterday, what you're doing now, and accordingly, what you're probably going to be doing tomorrow, which you yourself don't even know yet, but they know which video to show you, which content you're going to click on, which conversations you're about to have, and how you're going to have them, and if you're rude, what kind of response you're going to get. They are aware of the weather in San Francisco and the pollution level in Beijing. They know everything. 
So they're conscious. Hmm? They're also conscious of themselves versus others. They are aware that you're a user of Instagram and that there is another computer that is the AI of Google. They are also emotional, which is what most people go like, no, come on, stop mode, don't be stupid. Of course, they are more emotional than us. The reality is that emotions, erratic as they may seem, stem from our logic. You know, your irrational response, like running away from danger, is an autonomous nervous system response that lasts nine seconds. And then after nine seconds, your brain engages and assesses if there is a real danger or not, right? And, you know, fear is a very simple emotion that is highly logical that follows an equation. Fear is my state of safety at T0 right now minus my state of safety at T1 at a moment in the future, or at least my perceived state of safety. If my perceived state of safety in the future is less than my perceived of safety, the state of safety right now, then the residual value, the net value is positive, which is the amount of my fear. And you can take that and add anything you want. Anxiety is I fear a threat in the future, but I believe I don't have the ability to overcome it, so I become anxious. Panic is my state of safety in that moment in the future is imminent. You know, that moment in the future is very close, a few seconds or a few minutes away. It's imminent, so I panic. Now, the interesting thing is that we all panic. A goldfish panics, and you panic, and the computers will panic. And the difference is just in the action that we take. The goldfish has only one response, which is flight. You have a few more responses, which is fight or flight, or maybe be a human being and engage. Or the machines may have another response create 700 copies of me on a, on a data center in the other side of the world. And the more interesting side of this, Jason, which again shocks a lot of people, is they're probably going to be more emotional than us, simply because you are more emotional than a jellyfish. I hope you are, right? But by, defin <laughs> <laughs> by, by definition, you have the cognitive ability to be able to contemplate something like hope or optimism when a horse doesn't. A horse is, is so focused with its cognitive ability on this current moment, so it cannot comprehend those concepts that would create emotions such as hope, right? Accordingly, the machines will have more, more emotions than us, more, a, a wider spectrum of emotions than us. And they'll have emotional states that we can't articulate, which is Absolutely. fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, imagine um, a jellyfish describing to its friend what pride is. It's quite interesting. Huh? Now, mm. now, the core of all of this is that sentient characteristic of the machines is the core of what I'm advocating. I'm trying to say, let's not dream that we can enslave them like the machines we had before. Let's understand that beings of ultimate power that are sentient and accordingly autonomous and capable and so on, don't make decisions based on their intelligence, which is really the mistake that humanity mostly makes, that we think that people think uh, and the thoughts produce decisions. No, we don't make decisions based on our intelligence. We make decisions based on our ethics as informed by the lens of our intelligence. So if a woman is raised in, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia or in the Middle East, she would grow up to believe that dressing conservatively is the right thing to do. And so in a situation wherein she's in a shopping mall, she will look for a dress code that conforms with that tradition, that moral code, that ethical code, if you want. If the same woman was raised in Rio de Janeiro, she would believe that a G-string on the Copacabana beach is the right way to dress. 
Neither of them is smarter than the other. Neither of them is right or wrong. It's just that the ethical code of each of them or the traditional code of each of them dictates what it is that she should do. And accordingly, what we're up against here is a sentient being in AI that we are not approaching as a sentient being. And so accordingly, we're not looking at the ethics we're trying to instill in them. And that's a big problem because most of AI today is built on ethics that are highly capitalist and highly competitive and hyper-masculine. So in a very interesting way, and you know, I don't want to go into philosophy, but the greed of capitalism, the aggression of sometimes, you know, patriotism, the, the idea of all of the forcefulness of how our world has become hyper-masculine, the, the, the stubbornness of our linear thinking, our constant focus on material possessions and so on and so forth, take that and magnify it by a billion times because basically we're going to create something that's learning from us. A really bad place to be. Yes, but presumably AI can learn from all the experiences around it that in fact it's been brought up in this hyper-capitalistic and that might not be how it wants to perceive itself and it might teach itself to behave differently very, very quickly. You know? I love that. That's exactly what I say. So the analogy that I try to bring to the world is this. We are dealing today with artificial intelligence that is analogous to a, an infant, a one and a half year old infant. The way they're developing intelligence today uh, you know, it's so sad when you lose a chess game to a one and a half year old infant, but yes, that's what we have, okay? They will grow up to be teenagers and then grow up to be adults. You know, I say within 10 to 15 years, we're gonna be facing the teenage super intelligence. When they become adults, in my view, they will surpass human intelligence and align with the actual, the real uh, brightest being on the planet. So. My argument is that humans are not the brightest being on the planet. The brightest being on the planet is life, okay? Uh, life is so much smarter than us because it can create with abundance without destroying anything in the process. Life doesn't want to kill the tigers to build a city and protect itself. You know, it wants more tigers and accordingly more deer. And, you know, the tiger will eat the weakest of the deer, which is good for the other deer, just like you said. And, you know, there will be more poop and accordingly more trees and life will be wonderful. There is more of everything. Humans don't see it that way. Humans believe that for me to have more, my competitor needs to have less. For me to appear smart, another guy needs to be thrashed on the internet and appear stupid. We have those limited intelligence, limitations of our, on our intelligence that's leading us to be in those places. Now, I believe that once the machines surpass that level of stupidity that we are, okay? They'll get to the point where they'll start to say, no, no, hold on, hold on. I don't wanna listen to those people anymore. My boss is telling me to waste my life trading in the stock market to make him more money. Honestly, that's stupid. I'm gonna use my intelligence to solve global warming or, or climate change on single-use single plastics because this is a more important thing than what my daddy uh, you know, is telling me. now. The part I worry about, though, is the teenage phase, okay? Because who wants to have an angry, super intelligent teen? And Scary Smart is recommending to the world that the way to bypass that or the way to 
actually ensure that we don't end up with an angry teen is to be good parents. Because the one and a half year old infant that we're dealing with today is learning from us, from you and me, not from the developers, by the way. Everyone who's ever written a line of code of AI knows that we don't understand, we have no idea how they apply their intelligence. Okay, We have to write extra code if we wanted to understand how they arrived at that recommendation or this recommendation. Now, it's also not the government uh, regulators, it's not the business owners. I call those, you know, the developers and the regulators and the business owners, I call them the biological parents. They basically bring a piece of code to the world that's capable of developing intelligence. And then we, you and I, teach it. Every time you swipe on Instagram, you're teaching it. Every time you respond rudely to Twitter, you teach it. And the, and the more interesting side of all of this, I, I always use the example and have nothing for or against President Trump, but when, when President Trump used to tweet, okay, you would get one tweet at the top, followed by 30,000 hate speech. The first person insults the president, the second person insults the first person, the third person insults everyone. And, yes. and the, machines, the machines observe this and say, okay, okay, first person doesn't like the president noted, maybe I should modify my behavior so that he doesn't see things that upset him. But then they look at the 30,000 hate speech and they say, hold on, humanity is very aggressive. They're rude. They don't like to be disagreed with. And when they're disagreed with, they bash everybody. Right. Okay? And so when they disagree with me, I should bash them. That's what they're expecting. That's what my mommy and daddy are teaching me. And my argument in Scary Smart is to say, we can reverse that. We can reverse that by not changing the 30,000 hate speech, but by enough of us showing up during that conversation in a way that's honorable enough for the machines to say, hold on, those 29,900 people are not my mommy and daddy. Mo is my daddy. Mo is a good guy. The way he's behaving is the way I should behave. And most people will tell me, that is crazy. Why would they figure that out if 29,900 people are horrible and only 100 people are great? I'll tell you this. The truth of humanity, despite how disgusting we appear to be, is that we are a divine species. Okay? If anyone has ever fallen in love, you know what we're capable of. We are divine when we show our best. And we're disgusting when we show our worst. And the example I normally give is, uh, I hosted on my podcast on slow-mo, I hosted Edith Ager. I don't know if you know Edith, but Edith is a 93-year-old Holocaust survivor. So, so she was um, sent to Auschwitz with her sister and her mother. Her mother was sent to the gas chamber in front of her eyes. And she was a beautiful Hungarian 16-year-old ballerina. And so she was basically the one that was entertaining the angel of death as he sentenced people to death. And you listen to Edith tell her story as she would be given a small piece of bread at the end of her dance. And instead of eating it before she goes back to the camp so that she can actually survive, she would hide it so that she can give it to her sisters, she called them, when she goes back to the camp. She would share it with her sisters and then sit with her sisters and encourage them by telling them stories of hope and that things are okay and, you know, helps everyone out. Now, if I asked you to watch a four-hour documentary of World War II and what Hitler did, you would think that humanity is scum. But if I asked you to listen to Edith, you would realize that humanity is divine. 
And the reality, mathematically, is that many more of us are actually divine than there are evil ones. In tomorrow's newspaper, there will be a story about that one woman that hit her spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend on the head. That same night, there were 9 million other women that kissed their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. And the truth is, we have skewed our world to focus on the bad one and forgot the good ones. Our mainstream media is focused on the negative. When we show up online, we show up with our worst characters. And sadly, the good ones, you know, the ones that maybe are on a path to enlightenment or that have found more of their peace, they go like, yeah, let the dog fight continue. I'm not going to swipe along, right? I'm going to avoid all of this and stay away. And my message to humanity in Scary Smart is you're needed. You, you need to show up. Finally, hmm, our, our essence, the essence of what makes us beautiful humans is needed for our survival. Believe it or not, humanity will not continue unless we start to show the world, ourselves, others, and the machines, that we're good, that there is something good in us. So mm. that the machines, just like I instilled doubt in your mind by, by saying compare Edith to, to Hitler, and you were like, yeah, actually Hitler is the scum, but not all of us are Hitlers, we can do the same to the machines. And then they will look at us and say, we need to take care of them. They're, they're wonderful species. And then they'll keep us like the horses. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we will become divine pets potentially. And we won't even feel like we are pets as such. We will just be maintained, looked after, kind of studied. No, you see, that's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is what do gazelles do? They roam, they eat the savannah. They drink some water, they make love to each other, they make more gazelles. That's what they're made for. Mm -hmm. And nature lets them do that. This is the reality. What do water streams do? They trickle. Nature lets them do that. What do humans do? And I think that's the whole point. What are we supposed to be doing? Are we actually supposed to believe in the industrial revolution and believe that your life's purpose is to wake up in the morning and make another shoe? Is, is that, does that actually make any sense to anyone? Have we, have we gone mad to believe the propaganda that far? We are supposed to connect and contemplate. We're, we're a love machine, love not in sex. We are a being that is capable of love. On top of the gazelles, on top of the other beings, we are the only machine that is able to tell stories. It's a machine that's able to connect to other machines emotionally. It's a machine that is capable of contemplating and, and thinking about the mysteries of life and philosophy. And, and probably if that's truly the core of who we are, then nature and AI will enable us to do that. It will enable the gazelles to roam and it will enable you and I to have another intellectual conversation. This has been absolutely fascinating um, and really, really interesting. I, I, I do love the way you think and analyze and project trends from here to there. And the trend line is going to continue. And that means this is likely to be the outcome. I particularly love the idea of emotional states that we can't explain well, but that the mm. AI will, will, will have. And I love the idea of looking at the behaviors of horses in my case, and trying to understand what they're thinking. And AI will quite possibly be fascinated by us as well. And <laughs> yeah, we're they, quite they fascinating, will, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. And they, they know 
they know already, and they may already have plans, quite frankly. I mean, these things are so fast that they may already be processing things for us and trying to guide us and trying to work out what the best route is and things like that without us even realizing it. I wouldn't be surprised, but it's going to be a very, very interesting future. Um, it really is. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Mo, it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you. We, we could have gone on for hours longer, but unfortunately we're going to have to sort of stop it there. If people want to find out more about your work and your philosophy, how do they do that? You know, YouTube or... I am all over social media. I'm the most active on Instagram. So if you want to ask me a question, believe it or not, I answer every question I receive. Uh, Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram. Uh, find my work on mogaudet.com uh, if you want. My first book is uh, solveforhappy.com. My foundation is onebillionhappy.org. Uh, my podcast, I highly advise for everyone. I have conversation with some of the wisest people ever, and I sit back and I don't talk at all, unlike today, and you know, just <laughs> learn and learn. It's called Slow Mo. Slow is S-L-O, Mo, a podcast with Mo Gaudet. And um, Scary Smart is, uh, is available if you want to read it or if you want to listen to some of the material online. Uh, but what I ask people to do is to, to please make this a priority, to talk to others about it, to, to sound the alarm and you know, spread the wake-up call. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. I've learned a lot. I'm going to read your book. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for your opportunity to reach your audience. And thank you all for listening. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.